Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is supported by Golden Artist Colors. Golden is an employee-owned company based in upstate New York, committed to making the highest quality artist materials. From their acrylic paints, Williamsburg oils, and core watercolors, Golden makes materials so you can make your best work. You can find them in your local art store or online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is also sponsored by Baron Arts. Baron Arts is a Brooklyn-based designer and builder of the best stretcher frames, art panels, and floater frames in New York and the United States. They have many styles and options from standard strainers to mechanical expansion stretchers to fully custom shapes determined by each client. They also stretch the finest canvases and linens to your exact specifications and can even crate and ship your order or your finished paintings anywhere in the United States and worldwide. Baron Arts has almost 30 years of experience building custom structures for artists like Elizabeth Murray, Sean Scully, Kahinde Wiley, Joan Snyder, Catherine Bernhardt, and thousands of others. You know that 21-foot-long trifolding painting by Geneva Ellis, currently in the Whitney Biennial? Baron Arts made that. The stretchers and canvases for my upcoming solo show at Miles McHenry Gallery? They made them. From custom to standard, big projects and small, they remain the most reasonably priced custom shop around and take great pride in offering the finest work at affordable prices for the entire artist community. Your artwork should be on the finest structures available, built by Baron Arts. Find out more at baronarts.com. Anne Showstrom received her BFA from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and her MFA from Syracuse University. She's an associate professor at Penn State University and lives and works in Pennsylvania and New York, where she's the co-founder and director of First Street Green Art Park in the East Village. She's represented by Elizabeth Harris Gallery and exhibits internationally. Her work has been reviewed in Art in America, Art News, and other publications. Her public art projects include a mural in Crete, sculpture from decommissioned weapons in Albania, and Mir 2, a collaborative space station that won Dance Theater Workshop's Bessie Award for performance, installation, and new media. Her awards include a Mid-Atlantic Foundation for the Arts Fellowship, a New York State Foundation for the Arts Grant, and a Partnership for Parks Grant. Anne and I sat down at her show at Elizabeth Harris Gallery, which if you're listening to this podcast today releases, there's a closing reception for tomorrow at the gallery from 3 to 5 p.m. And we had a talk about travels, painting and sculpture, making lemons into lemonade and much more. Here's our conversation. Yeah. So the show, the show closes soon, right? Uh, yeah, it closes on Friday. On Friday. Yeah. The last week, so. Well, I think I'll I'll try to get this out Thursday so people can have one day. Wait, does it actually close Friday or is it open Friday that day? Uh, there's a closing party on oh, Friday. There we go. Yeah, but a lot of people listen or here in the city, so they could come out and check it out if it yeah. if it releases Thursday. Yeah, from yeah three three to five on Friday is mm-hmm. a closing party. So well, when how so when did you start making this work for this show? Oh, I made the first one uh, when I got back from Greece uh, the first time, which I guess was summer before last. Uh, I found myself 
um, making things that were like uh, helmets and armor and caryatids and were very three-dimensional. They were very colorful. And I thought, gee, I'm making sculpture. Maybe I need to make one in white just so I really can think about form yeah. and not color. Well, I'm sure you were also influenced by all that <laughs> I know. sculpture that you're seeing, right? I know, but the, during the first trip to Greece, what I loved was um, the Minoan painting and the Minoan pottery. It was mm-hmm. all very colorful and loose and processy and... I wasn't thinking I wasn't thinking about the statues but of course I was seeing them constantly right. so they were clearly in my brain. They're so iconic. And so <laughs> I so I made this one and um I made it kind of to my scale and I just made it with I had a painting tube in the studio um and I had a basketball lying around the house. Uh-huh. So the basketball was the head, and, you know, so it wouldn't be just flat across the top. Right. And I just made a, a creature. And, so it uh, wasn't necessarily premeditated at all? No. It was more, like, improvisational? Well, I always am pretty intuitive and improvisational. Yeah. And the first one, um, as soon as I was making it I saw the whole show yeah which is unusual for me I mean when I do a show I only one time before did I kind of see the show ahead of time so you kind of pictured this yeah I, I knew I needed to make um, an army of um, I was thinking of suffragettes and I was thinking of Shen uh, the buried terracotta mm-hmm. warriors and I was thinking of the sewn uh, um, Cadmus uh, threw down dragon's teeth and um, warriors popped up. But I was thinking of um, women warriors, you know. Right. And I also had been in a big march in 1980 in London uh, to commemorate, you know, an anniversary of, you know, something that the suffragettes had done there. I was living there and it was masses of women wearing white and it was very cool to be part of that and uh so i just kind of saw of course i saw i saw lots of of these figures and like an army basically yeah, yeah lots of them and uh to begin with i ordered uh 10 tubes of human scale, 10 tubes, Amazon scale. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought, well, I'll start with those. And I only got 17 made by the time of the show. They, t- they take time. Yeah. And I was also learning, you know, since I'm a painter generally, and even though the work has been gradually veering to three dimensions over, over time, mostly I think think of um, myself as a painter and I think about color and uh, so I had to learn a lot to make these yeah I imagine it's a whole new yeah, world was, right? it, and it was fascinating to, even to think about uh, one day I had a door open in the studio and like a big wind came up and, and blew the piece down 
<laughs> I thought, oh, gee, ballast. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Got to think about that. That's something you probably never had to worry about. No. Yeah. No. I mean, paintings are on the wall. Right. They're, you know. Screwed in. Yeah, something yeah. like that. So, well, you, but you've worked with fabric for a well, while. Well, but so my fabric pieces were always stuck on the wall with uh, Velcro. Yeah. Couldn't come off. And I did a piece for my last show, like, at the very end, the co- column that's in the space now, um, I decided to make it into a waterfall flowing over rocks. Mm-hmm. So I fitted it to the column. So... In a way, that was my first, you know, doing a column yeah. in the space. And the last show had lots of quite three-dimensional pieces, but I'd say the influence, it was before I'd gone to Greece, the influence was Asian, if anything. I did a tanka, and it just looks kind of Asian. I guess I'm always, even though I've never been to Asia, I'm always going to the Met or the Rubens, and I've always loved Asian art. Yeah. So, um, it's been an influence. Yeah, just um, I guess it's been an influence on Western modern art generally. Yeah, you know. Well, was the experience that you had working with fiber more two dimensionally? I guess it's always been three dimensional, but you know, more in the lineage of painting. Did that come in handy when? Doing these, or was it a whole new can of worms? Uh, it was a whole new thing, except including the fact that my work has been very intensely colored. When I moved you know, from paint to dyes, I, I still felt like a painter. And um, this time, at first I thought, well, I might dye them later. Mm-hmm. And, but, but I kind of knew I wouldn't, and I, I might eventually do some figures that you know I have some color ideas but um, I, th- I thought I first have to make my army right and uh, and I actually still haven't finished it I feel like um, these are uh, enough for the space um, and also they're not exactly an army either because the more I made them and lived with them and thought about them they're social constructs and they're always better in groupings than just seeing one of them yeah but in the gallery they're walking across the plaza they're maybe on their way to a symposium which of course women were not allowed to go to unless they're um hectares i mean basically courtesans yeah um but uh, this is kind of a women's symposium. Yeah. What's funny with that, even without the color, though, there's a lot of warms and cools. There's something really nice about the subtlety of the shifts in temperature. And I mean, there's, you know. Yeah, I enjoyed working with the subtlety instead of always intensity. And, uh, and I tried um, generally to do warm and cool, shiny and matte. Yeah. Um, fancy and uh, modest. Mm-hmm. Some of the fabrics are satin or lace. Some of the fabrics are really uh, mundane things like um, vegetable bags that had garlic in them. Mm-hmm. or um, uh, Artist canvas? Artist canvas <laughs> is in there. Yeah. And uh, one of my favorite 
um, things because it's a cool color but kind of transparent is fabric softeners that you put in the dryer. Yeah. I would take them out when they're all beaten up uh, and soft and then iron them. Oh, yeah. And then sew them together in different ways. Sometimes with, you know, I had some really thin um, cheesecloth-y warm fabric that I would kind of make things back and forth with them. Yeah, there's a lot going on with the, you know, it's funny when you see it at first, when you first walk in, it feels like this uniform, you know, you kind of see it at once. Like, oh, there's all these figures stoically standing there but then the more you look at it the more you see all those different textures and you know it becomes really complicated in the group of it you could get lost in that you know well some of the pieces I got lost in while making them one particular piece I spent a month on and then I thought I can't you know I can't finish the show if I'm spending a (laughs) month on each piece piece. it's crazy so but I've learned a lot doing that. I was yeah. trying to get some kind of punky hair. It's um, Hippolyta. Oh, it's that one, right? That one. Yeah. That one. And I had never done anything kind of like that before. For The, the heads had been simple the first few I did. And and uh, anyway, that uh, that took a lot of doing and undoing before yeah. it got right. Well, the two sizes, the, the human scale and the Amazonian, like what made you think to break it into those two specific scales well part of it was um the the available tubes yeah uline and part of it was i i wanted them to be human and to be uh goddesses or amazons and it seemed that um to me the more i was reading about the history of you know mythology it's um, it's probably early matriarchal culture um, carried on orally, um, leading to ideas about different goddesses. But they were human. But you know they became larger than life. And also, it was clear while visiting Greece, especially looking at friezes that would have. Um, fights against the Amazons, that it was the clash of patrilineal culture taking over from matrilineal culture, which, you know, Greece was sort of a playing field for that uh, takeover at various times, various ways. So, uh, and the the fight is still going on now. Yeah, definitely. That's what I was going to ask you, the, the kind of, the play between this historical kind of like icon and then bringing into like you're saying like the they're women you know these are like a group of women standing strong and and that kind of like old and new is the, the balance between that like of you know subverting an old greek you know male statue and then making them these sort of like women warriors in a way you know i mean is is the time base between those two things pretty strict to those two influences do you know what I mean? Well, there are so many influences on this work. Yeah. But it really would not have happened without going to Greece, in particular Crete. Crete is where the early stories all take place. And um, the stories we know from Homer and um, and from Freudian psychology all 
took place on Crete, and I was um, struck by by seeing things that were that I had read about a long time ago, and I said, "Wait a minute, uh, Robert Graves, the White Goddess," which I read in college, which you know, quite a long time ago. Um, I've got to read it when I come back, and I still had the the same copy, yeah. and so I. I started reading it, and then also I realized that Robert Graves had a three-volume set of uh, mythology, specifically Greek, and so I um, started reading that. And I also, Thomas McEvely wrote um, a great book um, about a combination of Interface between Greek and Indian culture, which the shape of ancient thought, and we think of him as you know an art critic, but he started out as a classic scholar. Yeah, and so this book was really fascinating, and uh, I just kind of got sucked into um, this this world, but also at the same time, uh, you know, we have our own current heroes, the um, Gang of Four, you know, yeah. um, AOC. And and I didn't want to um, make or name a character AOC, for instance, or Ariana Stark, for that matter, right. because I wanted it to be, um, while relevant, more abstract and more general and not... Um, not up to the moment, something, you know, more about um, the struggle that's gone on for, since the dawn of time. It kind of keeps it more open, right? Yeah. To not... And I didn't want the figures to be exactly figures either. Right. I mean, they, they clearly are. In fact, I call them sculpture, but I could also call them statues. Yeah. Which is an old-fashioned term, but... Um, right. And the Greek statues that are women... Uh, have clothing, you know. They showed the male nude, but um, other than bearing a breast now and again, the women generally had uh, clothes on. And so the motion of movement under clothing, you know, was something I I could easily kind of attempt to capture yeah. with clothing. Boy, that's shifted, hasn't it? it's 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 really amusing that um yeah now uh the men are all clothed yeah you never see the women are naked and uh in in our culture um yeah yeah. that's a big shift i'm not quite sure what it all means but um and during my generation of feminism um we never foresaw what our children and grandchildren would um, would think of as feminists, which includes, in addition to the Me Too movement, which is important, it includes um, owning their sexuality yeah. in a very, what to some old-fashioned types like myself seem a little bit um, extreme, um, you know, sharing naked pictures on social media, things that, um, interestingly, are kind of tied into some of the early matri- matrilineal 
um, sculpture in uh, India, for instance, yeah. where a lot of those um, temple sculptures, you know, had lots of uh, naked females, yeah. which the Greeks didn't so much because they were, I think, trying to suppress the sexuality of the women. Right. Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting how those things and it's cyclical, right? Like yeah. it just depends on the social sort of temperature at the time and things go against what just came before it. You know what I mean? Like it, Yeah, but it's backlash cyclical. is really, you know, <laughs> tough. Yeah, right? As we see now. Right. Uh, you know. Yeah, it's just you you re, you know, generations react to what's going on before. Like mm-hmm. I'm sure the feminist movement that you talked about when you were coming up is was, you know, kind of like really going against that current climate of the generation before. Well, you know? we um, we were a little slow in realizing that as we were involved in radical politics, in civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, um, you know, Black Panther, you know, d- defense groups that, you know, we were being used as sex objects and to make the coffee, right. you know, maybe if you're artistic to make the posters. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, we, we had a bit of anger around that once we kind of realized that, that was happening. And um, when I was a student at the Art Institute, I was in my first, that's of Chicago, um, I was in my first consciousness raising group. And... Um, we picketed a show, a, a biennial show at the museum that never had any women in it and never had women judges. And we insisted they add a woman judge. They had like three male judges already. Yeah. And they added Nancy Spiro. And that was, you know, uh, looking back on, well, the her body of work was important to a lot of uh, feminists of my generation. Mm -hmm. And um, she was using mythology in a pretty interesting way. And she, I saw her show recently at PS1, MoMA. And um, there was a whole series of work she did that... um, that I'd never seen at the time. I, I don't know how I missed it, but where she was reading H.D., who's a poet who was very tied to Greece, she was a bit overshadowed by her relationship with Ezra Pound, mm-hmm. thought of as his you know, girlfriend right. or something, but a really amazing lyrical poet. And a lot of, when I first came to New York, the first book I bought at St. Mark's Books was HD, mm-hmm. you know, collected works. And yeah. um, and so it was kind of a touchstone back in the early 80s for me. And at the same time, I realized that Nancy Spiro was doing this series based on HD. Sometimes I think there's a zeitgeist right. around. It's just in the air. But I somehow didn't see that series until recently. And I thought, well, it was one of her more radical um, series and she just like HD had a pretty feminist take on Greek mythology of course so did um, you know this this series was, was yeah. kind of playing with that um, well, I guess no internet it was hard to see that like if it wasn't if you weren't at the show 
How do you well, really know what the show was like? <laughs> I, but now I think people think they know everything because they see right. everything on the internet. But if you miss the physicality of work, if you're just living in the virtual world, you're not really seeing a lot of things. Yeah. Like this show, I think, um, even photographs fairly well, but it's different. Totally. In person. Well, especially, I, I think, work that confronts you on a one-to-one or in 1.2-to-one. You know, when something's your size in front of you and you can yeah. walk through it, it's a totally different feeling than seeing a picture. I mean, the, the photographs are cool. They look impressive, but you have to be in the space to really feel it, I think. Especially with all the textures and stuff like that going on. It's a, not, it doesn't always and, translate. And the color. Uh, yeah. The color doesn't translate. Either it's too blue to something um, in a photograph. Definitely. Well, well, let's go back to where you grew up. Where uh, were you? Where were you born? Uh, I was born at Lying in Hospital at uh, University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. So, um, very specific place. And um, my Catholic mother went there. Well, my parents had gone to school there, but anyway, wanted me to be born there instead of a Catholic hospital because um, she had had various troubles with, you know, she'd lost a couple uh, kids and her father insisted that um, at a Catholic hospital they think of the, the baby first and the mother second. Yeah. Like, if they had to sacrifice one, they'd sacrifice the mother. Right. So, in a way, I was born there, you know, to, uh, to keep my mother alive, but they did a good job and kept me alive. <laughs> and and the, Because two children, you know, before me had not made it. Yeah. So, um, anyway. So, you grew up in Chicago? Yeah. Uh, different places. Started on the south side. And... Um, then moved to the north side, then ended up, then Park Ridge, where Hillary Clinton's from, mm-hmm. and then ended up in uh, River Forest because of the tennis club, which was a Frank Lloyd Wright building. Oh, really? But my father was recruited uh, for the tennis club. Oh, wow. Uh, he was a big tennis player? Yeah, he was. Um, he won a championship uh uh, doubles one time, and he uh, was that what he did? Did like was that his job career? No, in fact, he um, he he left school a month before graduating from the University of Chicago because um, he had to play the tennis circuit, and then he he went into the army and was away in the army for five years and. Uh, came back and had a family and so it was in the days before you actually made money playing tennis it was when it was all um amateur and he Mm -hmm. was a big 10 champion um he was you know but for years he didn't play at all but then he started playing a bit and somebody kind of found him in this tennis club um was very social and had um only one position open one year, and a lot of people were vying for it. And the best player at the club said, "For once, I want to get a tennis player in." 
right. instead of socialite. <laughs> right. And so someone we could really play with. Yeah, and so we were the only Catholic family um, in the in the club because really? my father was a tennis player. Yeah, and they wanted a good tennis player. So that so you relocated just for just that. for that. Yeah. Now, what was your dad doing at the time? Oh, um, he was a salesman. Okay. And he started selling with sporting goods, and later on it shifted to um, art supplies and stationary supplies, which was great for me. Yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Was the moving around a lot based on job stuff, or was it just different houses? No, it was... um, Oh, the first house, um, I was only there till four, but I have this great memory of um, making things in what seemed like a big studio to me, but it was my mother and uh, my two older sisters and I uh, making kind of Christmas ornaments out of egg cartons and Mm -hmm. things, and... um, they, um, the house had had an extra kitchen that had been an upstairs kitchen. It had been a two-flat or something, but it was just the perfect artist studio. I think it, you know, imprinted on me, even though I was so young. Yeah. But uh, I always, you know, remember that space. And I thought it was enormous. It probably wasn't, but I was so tiny. At the time, it probably seemed. Yeah. And it had a a sink right there that was just like an art sink. Uh, so you had the art studio kind of, you know, envisioned and, you know, imprinted in your mind from a very early age. Yes, I did. Because you probably had fun there. So it, yeah, it was like it a was, place was, to explore. Yeah, a playroom. Yeah. We called it the playroom. And did you like art in school? Did you have good art teachers or were you, were you into it or um, was it just for fun at home sort of thing? Well, the first... Uh, the first thing I was into was poetry, mm-hmm. and um, we we had just moved to a new place when I was, um, well, to River Forest when I was maybe 10, I was young, and uh, the teacher uh, chose to uh, single me out as a scapegoat that year. Apparently it was something I later found out she generally did, mm-hmm. and since I was new. Um, so I had done a, I had brought in a poem that I'd written at home, and she made me stand up in front of the class and tried to get me to tell her where I had found the poem because she didn't believe it was mine. And she said she had been looking for it and hadn't found it, and she kept it, never gave it back, said she was determined that I was a plagiarist. I couldn't have, at 10, I couldn't have written this poem. And she was just so horrible that I never wrote another poem. Oof. And then, um, you know, the whole year. And um, That could have only gone two ways. That way, which is the not-so-good way, or the other way where it's like, oh, I know I wrote it, so if she thinks it's that good, then I must be really good. Well, I was a shy person yeah. and new in the community, and she was a really popular teacher, and uh, I was mortified. She, she did other forms of abuse, too, that yeah. year. But um, So I started um, staying home from school 
and I started drawing. And I think I hit out in art because I thought drawing would be harder to, you know, words seem so specific. And so I started drawing all the time. Instead of writing. That bullying created a opened a door for you. (laughs) It did, it did. (laughs) For the rest of your life. And my mother later on, this is years later when I was like a senior in high school, um, was teaching in the library of I mean she was not an a librarian, she was an assistant, but so this um teacher apologized to my mother all those years later but my mother being a very tough cookie um said well yes you were wrong about Anne and uh kind of didn't accept her apology yeah apology I mean it was um she stood up for you yeah she did well yeah I guess man when life gives you lemons you made lemonade out of it well that's um, a tough situation especially being new I can't imagine like moving to different schools, that must be really tough. I was always in the same school, you know, system my well, whole life. every time I moved, that's why I had this fantasy of the perfect life until I was four um, in my little studio. Oh, right, yeah. And every time I moved, I was bullied by somebody, whether other children, other... Um, it seems odd and a long time ago, and I don't... Um, it's been a long time since I've been bullied yeah you know it sticks but, with you though well it does you know like that kind of anxiety about it doesn't and it? i never like to see it happen to other yeah. people um well you so. got a good education in how not to teach students <laughs> yeah but actually when uh as far as an art education we ended up um, going to oak park high school which had a tremendous art program yeah. and so i was kind of in the right field um and I had teachers of the caliber that a couple of my teachers went on to become teachers in colleges. Yeah. They were just kind of temporarily there until they found their jobs. And um, one of my teachers was uh, um, a Japanese man who had uh, grown up in the camps. Mm-hmm. So that was an education to hear about, you know, that experience that he had had. And how old were you at this point? Uh, high school. Yeah. You know, 14. And so in high school, I just really dove in and I did everything. I did sets. I did decorations. I did playbills. I, you know, I, um, I, was, I was the go-to art person. So my whole social connection was an identity was around being an artist from about 14 on. Yeah. And that was, that was it. So did that pave the way you thought when you graduated high school, this is what I'm going to pursue? Well, I never applied to any school that wasn't an art school. In yeah. fact, I maybe I only applied to one school because I applied early to the Kansas City Art Institute mm-hmm. and um, and got in. I think that's all I applied to. And I um, well, you knew where you were getting in. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, and I I was. Um, only there for one semester, because this was a very heady time, mm-hmm. 1968, and I was all about uh, freedom, right. including um, classes. I would only go to classes I was interested in, whether I was signed up for them or not, mm-hmm. 
not necessarily the ones I was taking. Right. And um, I was hanging out with the political um, activists, and I um, moved in with the head of SDS. This was all in one semester. I took my first LSD trip. I uh, got busted in a park for grass only. Um, I had one joint somebody, I hadn't even smoked it, somebody had given me in a cigarette pack and kind of threw it out in the park. And this policeman um, didn't book me, took me to the station. And... uh, then I um, I began a dialogue with him. He was trying to get me to, you know, say where I got the drugs or, or guilt yourself, anything. Yeah. And, and finally, finally, he said, "Well, if you would just agree." And I met him in in the same park, and a lawyer told me I should I should meet the guy. I was kind of thinking I was going to be busted, and he said. If you would just tell me that if you saw a crime being committed, you would call the police, that would be enough, and I'll, I don't want to ruin your life. And I was so naive and um, um, stu- well, stupid that I said, <laughs> no, I couldn't promise that. It would depend on the situation. He said, well, you're going to be picked up tomorrow. And so I went back to the dorm, and somebody gave me my first LSD, that oh, night, and I thought, well, I might as well. You know, if I'm picked up tomorrow, I'll never get to try it. Oh, I thought you meant I might as well go into this not feeling totally normal. No, I just said <laughs> I, you know, I might not get to try it, yeah. so I tried it, and I liked it. That must have been a wild 24 hours. Yeah, it, well, I was <laughs> hugging trees and right. rolling in leaves. It was the autumn. It was really fun. It was great. It and was you, like you weren't the only one. At that point in time. Oh, at that time, no, not the only one. In right. fact, um, it was especially for artistic types in my generation. And and I have no regrets because, in a way, this work mm-hmm. um, is related to kinds of images that I saw on that first trip. Oh, I really? Was, I was sort of amazed that I was seeing things that I'd seen in um, eastern mandalas, like from Himalaya and mm-hmm. China. And I, was seeing, I was seeing the world from a totally different point of view that was um, actually more Asian and less, um, you know, like I was used to seeing it. And that opened my mind to the fact that there were many ways to see the world, yeah. and whether drug-induced or not. Right, or in handcuffs or not. <laughs> yeah. Did you and actually get picked up? Like the no, no, no. No, they didn't take you I, in. I never heard from him again. Oh, he was like scary, trying to scare you. He was trying to scare me yeah. straight. I guess it didn't work. <laughs> yeah, had the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, but but only one semester because you just didn't want to be... Because I came home for Christmas and told my parents what I'd been doing. Oh, and they kept you home? <laughs> <laughs> they... They made me enroll in a Catholic girls' college. Oh my gosh! In my community, you actually told them though what you were doing. Yeah, I was. That's nice. <laughs> I, I, um, I thought it was the right thing to do at the time. Sure. I, now I realize that 
almost nobody would have done it. Right. Some things are left better unsaid. Yeah. <laughs> well, how was the all-Catholic girls' school? Um, I registered. I attended one one day. And then I um, went downtown and got a job at um, Carson Peary Scott and Company making signs in the days when they, you know, you set type and yeah. made signs. Sign makers. Yeah. A sign maker. And started taking evening classes at the Art Institute of Chicago mm-hmm. while living at home. But they were cool with it because you got a job. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, they weren't cool with anything. They right, were kind right. of totally stunned because I had two older sisters and they had probably done some things that wouldn't have been approved of, but they never talked about it. Right. I was a hippie, you know. Yeah. It was like total honesty was yeah. considered, you know, the right thing. This is cool, man. This is what I'm doing. Like the freedom, not only the freedom to to want to break away from like class structures and like I have to take this class at this time, but freedom in the sense of like I'm just going to let it all out. Yeah, and and see what's going on. You know, I also thought they should have the freedom to decide not to fund my schooling if they didn't like what I was doing. Yeah, and they. Which they took you up on. <laughs> they did. And, and uh, so... Um, well, how were the night classes? It, it was UIC that you uh, were taking the night classes? S-A-I-C. Oh, that's right. School of yeah, the yeah. Art Institute of Chicago. And um, which, in a way, if I hadn't lived in Chicago and wanted to, to leave home and go away, I would have gone there. It's right. a great school and... Um, they were wonderful classes, and I could then use them toward my degree, and I did apply to get into school, and uh, got in, and um, I kept working, you know, my full-time job turned into a a 20-hour-a-week job, Mm -hmm. and uh, when I went to school, and my parents... um, said they wouldn't pay my tuition, but tuition at that time was so low compared to now <laughs> that I could kind of manage it, but then my father secretly paid the tuition anyway. See, good parents. Because, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And you my want... mother probably knew he was doing it, but he kind of said, oh, don't tell your mother, you know. Right. But, um, and I was living at home with um, this kind of crazy situation where um, I was the bad girl, although my mother never thought of me that way and kind of was was of two minds. Like she didn't really, she almost thought I was making up the stuff I was doing oh, because okay. to her that wasn't me. Right. Um, so it was a really disjunctive situation so I ended up going to um, live with a high school friend at the University of Chicago in Hyde Park, mm-hmm. and where I was born. And uh, you know, it um, I could afford to live there because it was a group of like seven or eight people, and yeah. uh, you know, I think my rent was thirty dollars a month. Oh my God! I know it's that's like two Starbucks drinks. Isn't it, is, isn't it amazing? I, I feel really sad that uh, students now, when they try to you know, come into the art world, they've got 
like millstones around their neck with all kinds of debt yeah. and expenses and you know like uh, an obscene they, amount it's ridiculous and i think that a place like penn state for instance yeah. um you know should make distinctions between the arts and humanities and engineering business you know the fields right. where you make good money yeah. and and have tiered tuition instead of a flat flat rate for all yeah yeah i think so that makes sense but it won't happen no of course not (laughs) um well yeah so you so you graduated from the art institute yeah and then what was the plan um were you loving chicago or were you itching to get out itching to get out yeah the great town but it's your town so yeah i I needed i always thought i'd end up in new york Mm -hmm. um but I went to Europe first, um, and I um, intended to find some way to stay over in Europe. But just before the trip, I fell in love with a fellow student who had another year to go at the Art Institute, so I ended up coming back. Um, you know, perhaps I was just hiding out. You know, it would have been a brave, exciting thing to um, be on my own in Europe at that age. And, uh, you know, maybe I didn't have the the courage to do it at that time. Yeah. But so I was back in Chicago, and I got a job. The most fun I've ever ever had in a job was... um, um, again at Carson Peary Scott uh, in company this time doing display mm-hmm. and I think you worked in display didn't I did. you? my first New um, York City gig and there's something about the display world it's fantasy yeah and I was the only woman in an all gay male department mm-hmm. and um, they were they were warned by their boss that they should treat me with kid gloves that I wouldn't be able to take their usual conversation, et cetera. But they, <laughs> they realized soon that that was not the case, and we became great pals, and, you know, I loved the job. So yeah. I did that and um, started making tiny work that was very different from work I'd done in school. And years later, when I started working with dyes and shapes and... It, the only thing I can think of that I did like that was right after I graduated from school, and I was kind of weirdly depressed and isolated, um, other than my fun job with you know yeah. the gay community there, and um, living with a man that was um, a recluse. Um, I think. He was interesting to me because he was reckless, because he was, you know, mysterious. Right. But, um, but, but anyway. <laughs> that wore thin after a while. But I kind of never saw him because he had a, I had a day job. He had a, a night clerk job. And I would, at night when he went off to work, I would make these things. I would steam open envelopes or boxes and construct things. And I would use, um, paint and wax and they were they were kind of my first weird shaped um 
you know, almost like templates for things I later did with fabrics. Mm-hmm. Were you meeting, or did you have like an artist community or people that, you know, you were well, friends with or like talking to about work and stuff? Uh, no, I didn't. You would think I might, but I was living with University of Chicago people. Mm-hmm. Um, on the south side, and then now I was living on the north side, and my cohort had graduated, and most of them went off. Yeah. So I didn't really. And I was um, almost as isolated as when I first started moving around as a kid. Yeah. It was a strange period, but looking back on the work, and I had a show at the end of the year before going off to South America, and... Um, it was a, a good body of work, and it um, was kind of prescient to later things, although mm-hmm. I, I sort of dropped it all and started doing other things. But I think it um, goes, goes better with work I've done in recent years than yeah. anything else. I think some of the, a lot of you know, artists at some stage have that isolated post-school difficult work time working that period it's almost like boot camp or something where you really learn a lot about yourself when you know what I mean yeah, when you're I just isolated and sometimes depression yeah uh, you know artists often fluctuate between the manic depressive you know sides right and they're both sides are really good for work yeah that's um, true not so good for relationships sometimes no <laughs> no Definitely not. But hey. neither, neither side is good for relationships. That's a good point. But, yeah. but um, you know, some of us manage. And, yeah. Um, so would, how long did you stay in Chicago? Um, let's see. I guess I stayed um, just one year, and then I went to um, my uh, partner got into Yale. So the recluse? The recluse got into Yale. And he was such a recluse <laughs> that I only met, during two years, I only met two of his classmates. And oh, I met wow. them each once. Um, and my social life there was tied to um, working at the Yale Co-op doing window displays. Oh, wow. So you lived in New Haven. Yeah, I lived in two, New Haven for two, two years. Two years doing small works on the kitchen table in a tiny place. and um, Oof, New Haven, too, can be rough. Doing window displays and being very isolated yeah. still. Yeah, New Haven's a weird place. Yeah. Even um, when you're going to school there, and then if you're not going to school there and you're just hanging out there, it's probably, I don't know, yeah. a, a strange vibe. But my, my workshop was in the warehouse, mm-hmm. and... Um, Louis, who ran the warehouse, was an Italian from New Haven, like, really great guy. Yeah. And um, I had, uh, he had an assistant who was a, a young guy mm-hmm. that, um, it was almost like the warehouse became this family thing with the kid, and he and I, and we would um, play hearts together. Uh-huh. I, I, you know, it became, in a way, my um, social existence. Yeah. Pretty limited. But it kept you from... Kept me sane. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and also, um, this kid was a real music fanatic. Oh, that's cool. And so, you know, we would uh, 
played great music. He loved classical music, and my father had loved and collected classical music. Yeah. And I, I, you know, so we would play the Brandenburg concertos over lunch hour while playing Hearts, and um, it, you know, it had its uh, pleasures. Yeah, definitely. So, so two years of that. Two years of that. Then to New York? Not yet. No. New York was a long time coming. Yeah. No. Then um, then a teaching job at Syracuse for the recent Yale graduate. Mm-hmm. And um, I actually found the job for him at... Um, I just popped into the Art Institute to look at their job board, mm-hmm. and I saw this job and... You know, it was the only teaching job he applied for. He hadn't intended to, but he got it. And um, so then, um, what department was he teaching in? Um, painting. Oh, so he was an artist. He was an artist. Oh, I see. He was an artist, a really good artist. Yeah, yeah. And um, well, he no, he actually was in the foundation department. Okay. But anyway, he was a painter. But. Um, so you spent some time up there in the cold. <laughs> it was so the snow would be, you know, ten feet high oh, all winter geez. long, and gray skies. And I started doing this very dark, dark work that I would start with bright colors mm-hmm. and kind of beat them to death until <laughs> until they became really, you know, uh, these these weird. I guess it was my depressed period but um (laughs) your blue period (laughs) anyway (laughs) anyway um but I learned a lot about painting and about color because when I was at the art institute we did anything and everything I took a course called audible constructs Mm -hmm. I you know um a course in in light light um so I didn't really get taught to paint I painted but I kind of was on my own as far as painting. Yeah. So I, I kind of taught myself to paint with oil, you know, over time and really um, got good at mixing color and glazing and things, yeah. um, doing this body of work. So, um, but then we went to uh, London and London just kind of opened me up. And it you was. You finally made it to Europe. Oh, I had gone to Europe. I had gone to Europe with my sister for three months. I just didn't stay there. Oh, I, I guess see. I didn't make that clear. Right, right. I, you know, I was going to try to stay there like forever, and I didn't. But it was stay. quick. Yeah. And I, I was just there with my sister, not alone. I kind of wanted to try it on my own. Yeah. But, um, so, um, one day in London, I. Um, you know, it, it sort of was clear to me that that I was going to leave my husband. I didn't know kind of when or how, but um, it was just, you know, there was one thing we were supposed to do socially together that we were halfway on the train and he couldn't do it. And I just thought, I have to get out yeah. of this. It's not going to work. And so... Um, I came back early to go to graduate school, and uh, he stayed a semester, so that was our first separation. And 
my work just exploded. It well, it started changing a lot in London, yeah. um, and uh, it just got more colorful, more um, less repressed. You know, just yeah. changed a right. lot. So, um, and that kind of led to you know, the more it changed, the more you know, angry he got about the work in a way. Um, because, well... Oh, he was not, really, yeah. He well, was really invested in what you were doing. Well, he loved the dark and depressed work I was doing. Well, of course. He thought it was really great work. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, What's with this party of colors and all this festive <laughs> happiness? Well, maybe he could see what was coming. Um, yeah. The fact is, I later ran into him years later. Yeah. You know, he's... He's actually a wonderful person, and uh, um, and he thanked me for leaving him, and said it was the best thing that happened, and that when he went into therapy after I left him, it ended up being all about Vietnam. Oh wow! Viet- well, for a sensitive artist, mm-hmm. you know, to be in Vietnam, um, Vietnam destroyed a lot of people in my generation, right. and. I, I was a lot younger than he was. I was naive and didn't understand where some of the problems were coming from. Um, and you know, when he, when we talked about it, it it made sense that um, that uh, you know he was a casualty of of combined sensitivity and brutality. Yeah. And PTSD, I would imagine, you know? Yeah. Like post-traumatic. So, yeah, he was a real casualty yeah. of Vietnam. And, and I think he had gotten to a much better place. And he was married again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think we both got to much better marriages, you know. Um, again, when life gives you lemons, you made lemonade. Well, you know, I, yeah. and I finally got to New York, you know. Yeah. The minute I, I got my degree, I went off. To New York. And you felt like, did you immediately feel like, yeah, this is where I've been? Yeah, whenever I had gone to New York over the years, um, I felt like my batteries were charged Mm -hmm. and then they would drain out when I would leave. Which is funny because that's a true New Yorker because a lot of people come here and they drain the batteries. (laughs) You know what I mean? They're like, oh, the city's exhausting. But yeah, it's, it's, I know that you love the city. It was my place. So I was so happy to be here and, uh, I think for about six months, I probably went out every night. Yeah. And then I got burned out, and I started, you know, staying home and doing work and so on. But right. uh, you took was, advantage of the yeah of the social situations. Of the yeah, city. I guess I was sort of starved. For yeah. It. Well, you were rebounding from being yeah what seems like being in a cave for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of like that. Yeah. Well, Syracuse, too. Oh, Syracuse was so um, dismal. Yeah. And New York was so alive. And right. Yeah, even when it's cold here, they're still bustling, which kind of warms you yeah. in a way. And also, but, you know, it's been very hot the last couple of days. And, but true. New Yorkers aren't afraid. They're, they're out on the street. Yeah. You know. So, yeah. So I, I love New York. And there's so much of everything. I mean, Chicago had great music, um, but New York just has more of it. Yeah. You know, and museums, 
the Art Institute was an education to walk through it every day going to school there. But New York has, you know, what, eight great museums. Yeah. Maybe more. And then a ton of other great and places to see stuff. And yeah. yeah. Chicago's art scene compared to New York is minuscule. Right. Um, yeah, it's tough to compete. There's a lot of stuff going on here. Yeah. So, so but now you split your time between New York and Pennsylvania. Yeah. So, it's, so you have the best of both worlds, really. You can get out and escape and get to some quiet, but you can also be in the energy of the city as well. So you made the work for this mostly in Pennsylvania? Uh, I made it entirely in Pennsylvania. Yeah. And for the first time, usually if I have a long break, like a month for Christmas or a week for spring, I'm in New York. But this time I stayed out... Um, I was uh, a little like Syracuse. I was in this snowy, white, cold, wet place and making this white work. And, uh, but it, it was beautiful. I mean, I was so happy during that period. I was, I was actually upset at a certain point when I made um, Daphne. She was the last one I made kind of start to finish, and and I thought, well, gee, I finally know what I'm doing. Yeah. And I either have time to make one more, or I have time to remake the ones that aren't good enough, mm-hmm. and I chose to do that, so I started kind of reworking some of the early ones, you know. Tweaking even, things? Yeah, yeah, changing things. And, yeah. Um, so, and my time was up. You know, whenever deadlines. you have a show, uh, <laughs> deadlines help focus you. They help allow you whatever your family responsibilities or work responsibilities. They allow you to kind of take the time you need. Yeah. And so, I always feel like my work grows so much when I have a deadline. Yeah, it just gives you that permission, that kick in the butt. You know, yeah. to be like, okay, I got to get this stuff done, and then. Mm-hmm. Sometimes finish lines can be a little blurry unless you have that hard date or that you know thing going on. Yeah, it just it motivates and 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 it kind of like makes you focus. But then the period when the show's up to me is always um, weird. Yeah, because um, you're you're not living with them the way you were the works, mm-hmm. and uh, you have to do things you don't generally like to do. I mean, of course, this is a pleasure talking to you, of course. <laughs> right. Of course it is. Right, right. And, I, and I've enjoyed, you know, I've had some nice experiences that wouldn't have happened yeah. without the show. Um, but it's different. Yeah, but it stops the flow. Mm-hmm. The intensity and the flow. And yeah. so also when you come back to it, you never know where you're going to be. I feel like it's kind of, I say it sometimes, it's like dropping your kids off at school. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, hope it goes well. See you later. You pick them up. You don't know what happened that day. <laughs> yeah. And, and these days, you know, you might be worried. Right. Because, you know, um, it's, it's a crazy world in school sometimes. Um, yeah, it can be, for sure. Yeah, can be. Um, well, but, so, I mean... Now that this is up and, you know, almost run its course, do you have the next... Well, you're going to be traveling soon. So I imagine that would probably fuel the fire of what's to come. But do you go through a period of 
just taking it easy and like recharging and then recharging the visual clock in a way or well I'd like to jump I feel like jumping right back in the studio mm-hmm. but I think that it's probably better to go somewhere and uh, there's a project that uh, John John and I are going to do murals in Crete which we did a couple of years ago the mm-hmm. first time we went to Crete and um they're having a, a fair in late September, and we've been invited, so we're going to do that. There are a lot of places that I haven't seen that I want to see and need to see. Uh, we're likely to go to Turkey. Nice. And um, maybe to Sicily. So um, we're thinking we might be gone for about three months. Mm-hmm. And um, we're taking the year off teaching, so we're going to then come back, and then at that point decide, do we want to just dive into the studio and spend the time in the studio, or is there anywhere else we want to go? Um, Take a long nap. (laughs) A nap, a nap. (laughs) There's no time. There's no time for naps. Um, Actually, I, I do. Sometimes in the studio, I take naps. The power nap, where you just like give yourself that energy, right? Well, it's... It's like if I get stuck sometimes, if I get into some weird place. Yeah. Sometimes if I take a nap and wake up, then I get unstuck. Right. Yeah. I don't know why, but sometimes. Um, it's, like, it's like a more relaxed current version of a psychedelic re- reboot. <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> Not quite as intense. No, no. <laughs> seeing things fresh like yeah. after. Yeah, yeah. Like resting a little bit. Yeah, because I feel like for years and years I would have a show and then just keep working straight through. And the only thing that ever kept me from slowing down was taking a trip and, and going and traveling somewhere. Oh. But I realized how valuable that was for me to sort of see things fresh and to hit the refresh button, you know. Well, one thing that happens when I take a trip, we've gone to, in recent years, besides Greece, uh, we went to Albania about five times doing mm-hmm. a public art project. We went to to Spain. Um, you start to see how how much um, culture is about travel. It's about uh, the Silk Road. It's about trade. Yeah. It's about um, people on the run because of war. It's about people learning from each other because... Often people are forced to travel, or travel for commercial reasons, yeah. not necessarily for tourism. But even tourism is a pretty old game. I mean, it's an ancient thing, tourism. Yeah. Um, and interchange, um, cultural interchange, is uh, uh, it's important to the development of not only of a a peaceable kingdom ultimately if we ever get there yeah but um you know any kind of cultural growth you know and even it even teaches you you know as you get into the history of the different countries that all countries have dark ages and all countries have golden ages and they're different in different places mm-hmm. and um no country is so-called primitive or backward. 
and no country is always in their golden age. And right. America is perhaps um, leaving its golden age if we're not careful because of some of the damage being done and um, because of global warming, um, the earth may be a very different... I mean, you have a, a son, so I'm sure you worry about his future. Of course, um, yeah. And, you know, his generation is going to be important in terms of uh, finding technology and the will to do something. And I think that the surge of women um, is going to be important because women think more in terms of stewardship. Men think more in terms of dominion. Mm -hmm. And um, when you look at some of the early religious ideas that were, you know, more female-oriented, um, they have to do with protecting the earth, yeah, not having dominion over the earth right. and using the earth. And so I think it'll be important that men and women together figure out, and also the younger people, how to, um, you know, do the things necessary that the human race will survive on the planet, which is not certain. They're going to have to, or or grow gills or something. Well, well, <laughs> you know, yeah, like life on Earth, you know, could be completely different in uh, you know a century. Now, when we had the first Earth Day, and I think it was 1972, mm -hmm. perhaps, um, you know, we knew this was coming in some way, but we kind of thought, well, um, not in our lifetime, right. and also, you know, we'll, our generation will do the right thing. We're, you know, hippies got to go back to the garden types, right. but uh, it didn't turn Oops. out that way. The <laughs> back, backlash was severe, yeah. and, um, you know, we threw out Jimmy Carter mm -hmm. and got in Reagan, and um, it's been a vicious um, almost rape and plunder of the planet. We have a bad tendency as a species of waiting until it really hits the fan to clean the fan. Yeah, I, th <laughs> I think nobody really believes, even, even now a lot of people, you know, refuse to believe how bad it is. It's abstract until it's real. But it's starting to be real just because... Yeah. Um, Weather conditions are such that people are having floods and people are having mold problems and people are having firefi um, having fires year-round in California instead of just a, a half-year fire season. Right. Um, the earth is either getting to be desert or rainforest. And... Uh, so people are noticing. Well, the kids Even, have it on their radar. They've been doing projects at school. Like it's, I feel like that seed has been implanted. Hopefully it grows and they become conscious, you know, active. I mean, they're going to have to be. You yeah, know, I, th I think your son's gonna... generation uh, really understands. Yeah. I think the older, like the college students, maybe, you know, they're getting it now. Maybe 10 years ago they didn't. Right. You know. It hasn't been like ingrained into their education from the jump, whereas yeah. I feel like younger kids it has. You it know? has, and it's only it's only been maybe in three or four years that uh, the disasters are getting so extreme. Yeah, 
and also the wars because of um, our regime change wars in the Middle East um, are such that there are so many um, refugees so which is having its own backlash Um, so it's complicated dangerous you know this is about as dangerous as I remember in my lifetime and I've lived through some dangerous situations um, too you know but well, I feel like we're really leaving this on. <laughs> well, this is heavy, kind of a no. Note. This is it is, and it's kind of. Um, but it's important. Well, I'd like to get it back on a hopeful note, because, um, for instance, the last election when the, um, you know, the House was taken back by the Democrats, not the Senate. But yeah. uh, and we've got so many amazing candidates with great ideas. We've got, um, you know, somebody like Elizabeth Warren, who, um, even if she doesn't get the nomination, um, she's like a brain trust, a one-person, um, you know, idea yeah. f- farm. I mean, she's got so many excellent ideas that, you know, could be guides for how to move forward in the future and um, so many young people actually high school students all around the world are um, are demonstrating about global warm- warming more than college students are so I kind of feel that um, uh, as far as the human resources on the planet that in spite of you know the, the the crazy um, backlash that's going on and denial of science that's going on, um, that's not a majority of people. I think the majority of people um, believe in reality. And also, even though Facebook and social media is an excellent way of spreading lies, it's also an excellent way of spreading information. And the young people are using it to... Um, share information with each other and find out about things, do research. So, you know, maybe maybe more um, promising things than, uh, you know, than not. Yeah, I hope for the best long term. Well, cool. we've got to. Yeah. You know, we're artists, we make things, and um, it's almost as if the... Marcuse and McLuhan idea that everybody's an artist. I think to survive, everybody has to start to think like an artist, even if you're a scientist, an engineer, a business person. Creativity. Uh, creativity is going to be important to get out of the mess. Yeah, for sure. So I feel like okay about training art students, even though I know they won't be able to be... Um, Jeff Koons and probably wouldn't want to be Jeff Koons. Right. But, um, you know, I figure they'll make a contribution to um, keeping the planet viable. For sure. Well, let's talk about short term. So the show, so this Friday is, is the last. Clo- and there's a closing reception? Yeah, there's a, a closing party from three to six, end of the day. You know, refreshments and to say goodbye to the show. Right. And, and the gallery information, do you want to share that? Oh, 
Good idea. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, Elizabeth Harris Gallery, 529 West 20th Street, between 10th and 11th. Sixth floor. Sixth floor. Thank right. you. Yes, it's... <laughs> It's that mega art building that, you know, some artists are used to visiting. Yeah. A few other galleries there, too. And then they can find, if they can't get to that, they can see the show on the gallery website. Yeah. Your website. On the, right. Yeah, both websites. And I'm just com. Mm-hmm. Gallery website is ehgallery.com. And... Um, I think since I have some people here, I'm going to put in a plug for First Street Green. Definitely, yes. Which is um, about to have a new series of murals. The first couple are being painted already. And we had an open call and got lots of entrance and some really wonderful murals are being painted. And we will have an event when they're all done. Um, And for people who don't know, that's on Houston Street and the Bowery. Uh, right. Or not the Bowery. Not exactly it's close. Houston and 2nd Avenue with another entrance on 1st Street. First, but right. most of the murals are along Houston um, Street by 2nd Avenue. Like Caddy Corner to the Whole Foods. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's it's pretty easy to see the murals. And we have other cultural events. We have music and so forth. But um, And you've been involved with that for a while. Yeah. yeah. Uh, founded it. Um, and run it with a couple of people who've been very important, you know. Well, it's been great to have this conversation right in the middle of your sculpture. (laughs) Yes, it's been nice to to talk to you because although, you know, we teach together, we... uh, When do we ever have time to sit and talk? You know, we're always talking to the students. Right. And so, it's and running around like crazy, going to meetings and you know, yeah, yeah. and the like. Yeah, yeah, so. this is great. Yeah. Well, thanks for meeting me here. Yes, thank you. Thanks. Sound and Vision is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find out more about the podcast or donate or support it at soundandvisionpodcast.com. You can see more images at Sound and Vision Podcast on Instagram. And you can find out more about my work at brianalfred.net or on Instagram at Alfred Studio. Um, many thanks to Golden Paints for supporting the podcast and our new sponsor, Baron Arts, who make great stretchers and panels. Check them out. And many thanks to Anne. Try to see her show if you can. If not, check it out online at Elizabeth Harris Gallery's website. And you can find out more at her website. Many thanks to Lullatone for his intro-outro music and Michael Lovett of Nazca Lines and who is currently playing with Metronomy um, for doing the introduction. You can support the podcast by going to iTunes and leaving a rating and review. It really helps. 